Welcome to the Football Coaching Life podcast brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media, the podcast professionals. These are conversations, the stories and the insights from Australia's male and female football coaches. I'm Heather Garriock and today we turn the tables with Gaza, the legend Cole. Welcome Gaz. Yeah, thanks very much, I think. <laughs> yeah, this is this is going to be a good one. It's going to be a cracker. Um, I'd just like to introduce you as a football player. Um, you had a prolific career across the NSL with Heidelberg United and Preston. Played for the Socceroos 40 times. Oh, well, lucky I've played 90 more than you guys. I can use that as a... Uh, Bragging rights, scoring 20 goals. I scored 21 gas. Notably, scoring seven goals against Fiji at Olympic Park, a record at the time, since broken by the greats, Melbourne Victory, former player Archie Thompson. Inducted into the FFA Hall of Fame in 2003. What an honour. As a coach, winning championships with Altona Magic and Bulling and taking charge of the Victorian State Squad, as well as a coach at the AIS under the great Ronnie Smith. As a person, proud father, ambassador of legs out for lymphoma, a cancer survivor, football operations manager for Melbourne Victory for over seven years, in which time won three A-League titles, FFE executive manager and football coaches Australia director, and the host of this and founder <laughs> of this fantastic podcast, but absolutely not today. Okay, let's get straight into it, Gaz. Um, let's get comfortable, sit back in the seat. How did it all get started for football for you? Uh, I started watching my dad play. I, I'm, I'm, my parents were married when they were 18 um, and um, I was born when they were 20 in London, England. Um, and my dad played with his brother for a... Um, a youth club that they'd been through since they were teenagers. Um, they used to get changed. One of the one of the blokes in the team had a, a removable van. They used to get um, changed in the back of the van, play on you know oval community pitches uh, where you they'd have to go and pick up the posts and the crossbar from a shed and put the posts up and the nets up. And so I, you know those early my early memories of of learning to love the game was watching my dad play. Um, him and my dad and my uncle Harry um, were both central defenders so I took one look at them trying to head one of those big wet heavy leather balls and decided that I'd be a striker I think um, never never fancied defending so that was where the early love came you know and, and growing up in the UK obviously you play on the street you play before school after school during school um, and I, I ended up living in, in Battersea which was across the road from Stamford Bridge so I used to Walk across the Stamford Bridge and uh, and watch Chelsea before they had the uh, the Russian billionaire in charge and and do as well as they do nowadays. Was there a particular moment where you thought, "Yeah, this is for me," or was there a moment when when your father was playing or um, anything in particular from from a, a, a outside point of view that really made you think, "Yeah, this is for me." Uh, look, I I don't think there was maybe towards the end we left London on my 15th birthday um, and prior to that in this the competition we played one of the teams was I can't remember it was it was like St Andrews or something that, that they were a, a youth club that were affiliated with Fulham and we used to play them obviously um, once a year and we play on a, a public park outside of Craven Cottage and 
I have to admit, you know, I sort of pondered, wow, if you if you play good in this game, would there be a chance that, you know, you might get noticed and there could be an opportunity of a professional contract? But I don't think I ever had the self-belief at that stage that, you know, I was going to be a professional footballer or whatever. And, and then, of course, my professional career in England was cut to a ruthless end because <laughs> my, my dad came home one day and said, we're going to Australia. And we all said, where the bloody hell's Australia? Uh, that was 1971, and, and we jumped on an aeroplane and, and landed in Melbourne. So football took a, a different twist then. What a great decision. Absolutely. So stepping, stepping through your incredible career as a player, at what point did you realise you'd make a career from football, either as a player or a coach? Because obviously in the 70s, obviously that's not easy. No, no, it was a, it was a semi-professional career. I was ended up being a school teacher, um, and I was very fortunate when I got you know to to play in the Socceroos. Rudy Guttendorf was the Jimmy Shoulder gave me my debut against Greece here in Melbourne, which was a, a wonderful night playing against a, a full house of Greek supporters. It was great fun. Um, but Rudy Guttendorf was the the Socceroos coach at the time, and Rudy would you know, on a Saturday decide to call a camp for Monday and, and you get a fax or, or a, you know, there was no such thing as text, obviously. Um, and you, you sort of have to drop everything and, and go. And, and in those days, a lot of the players were sort of billed as labourers as well as, as being this. I was a, had a professional career as a teacher, but I just had a fantastic principal that I used to ring him and say, listen, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be there on Monday. Um, I'll apply for leave when I get back. And, and we headed off up to Sydney and, um, uh, for a for a camp, so it was it was very much um, you know a support income, and that that was interesting because at the end I, I met Ros um, at high school. We got married. We were both teachers, so we had two full time teaching incomes. I had my my uh, football money coming in, so we had three incomes. We were saving money. We had a good lifestyle, um, and one of the Heidelberg coaches, uh, John Margaritas. Um, arranged for me to trail with Queen's Park Rangers back when Jerry Francis was the England captain. Um, and so I, we'd arranged uh, with an old uh, team, Heidelberg teammate of mine, Jimmy Campbell, that was from Oxford. We were both back at the same time and we met up over there, but I, I spent a week training with Queen's Park Rangers and, and really I, I look back on it and, and go, wow, what a wonderful opportunity that was. But that trial was part of a month-long holiday in Europe. We we're actually engaged. To, I got engaged to Ros as well. And at the end of my week there, Queens Park Rangers said, "We want you to stay on and pl- play a couple of games in the reserves." And I said, "Well, no, I'm sorry. I've got, <laughs> I've got, you know, trains booked. We're going to France and Amsterdam and all this." And I must admit, at times I looked back and went, "They must have thought, what, what a bloody Wally this bloke is. He's come all the way from Australia. We've given him the opportunity." I must have done something right because they offered me an opportunity, but we didn't. We went, you know, I'd just sort of broken into the Socceroos and, and we were holidaying in Europe and we were going back to play football in Australia. Um, but I, I did, still didn't realise that football could be a career and it wasn't until I finished playing and, and Ronnie Smith, had, uh, Jimmy Shoulder had gone back to the UK, Ronnie Smith had got promoted to the head coach and, and the AIS advertised his role. And Ronnie rang me out of the blue one day because he he tricked me into coaching a long time before that. And he said, "Guys, I, you know, looking to, for someone to be my assistant, um, and would love love that person to be someone that's played for the Socceroos because that's going to be the ambition of these players and someone that's you know beginning their coaching journey and wants to learn." And um, I was fortunate enough to to, to get a full time gig. But I have to say again, Heather, I didn't realise at the time I. I 
I took that for granted. I just never realised how fortunate I was to have a full-time job in Australian football as a coach and realised just how few of those jobs there were going around. So just to clarify, throughout your career as a football player, you didn't feel that you were a full-time professional, you weren't a full-time professional, you obviously had to work. And you got to the end of your career and you transitioned into coaching and you had a wonderful opportunity as assistant under Smudger. And that's when you sort of realised that, oh, maybe I could have made more out of my career. Was there any regrets within that area? No, I've never... Never really on the whole box and dice of it. I've never never felt regretful. That's not me. I'm sort of a glass half full person. And occasionally you go, well, I wonder what might have happened. But, yeah. you know, life's about forks in the road, isn't it? Every, every day there are decisions to make and there are forks in the road and we take this one and that leads us to another fork. So I've never never been one for, for, for really being regretful because I think I've tried to make the best of every opportunity. Um, but, you know, coaching... What I did know, because I was a primary school teacher, what I didn't know at the start, when Ronnie's, I was 19, 20, uh, I'd been playing football. Um, the, the National Soccer League hadn't kicked off, but I, I was playing in the, whatever it was called back then, the Victorian Premier League or, or something. State, no, it was probably State League One back then. And Ronnie Smith was the, the first state director of coaching in Victoria. And he was looking for people that were playing to get into coaching. So he actually tricked me into doing a provisional license at 19 um, and that was the beginning of the journey. So I had a coaching license and I got a little bit that sort of made me curious. Uh, and then I finished, well, back then you sort of had the, the provisional license and the senior license, which I did when I was 30 at Preston. So I'd, I'd sort of come to the, <laughs> I knew I'd come to the end of my time at, at Preston. They made that nice and clear. I didn't know at the time I was going to go up to work with Ronnie at EAS, but I went and did the senior license. What I did know was that I was a coach by nature. I was a teacher. I, I like to teach. I believe in human performance, and I um, still today I, I love that. It's, it's uh, you know we're incredible creations that we can grow and get better no matter our age or what the starting point is. So it was it was really around those times that I you know I knew that I was a coach and that that I thought the coaching was going to be a an important part of my journey. Yeah, great. You've spoken a lot about um, Ronnie Smith and obviously he's an absolute legend when it comes to coaches, especially in Australia, um, but also internationally as well. Um, What other coaches have left a a mark um, on either your career as a player or you coaching with or observing coach? Yeah, that's a a great a great question uh, I've pondered that a few times the, the ones that stand out were Ronnie because of the introduction at the start and then I obviously got to work with him um, at the AIS and I'll, I'll come back to that a bit uh, Eric Worthington who was the father of the coach education program that w- was brought out by a cigarette company Rothmans to set up the Rothmans coaching scheme um, Australia threw together an under 23 team when we never had an under 23 team to play in a, a tournament in Singapore, the Malayan Cup, and Eric was the coach of that. And I got selected as a player in, in that, um, along with, with Cozzy and, and, and people of, of that sort of calibre. And Eric put on some training sessions um, that changed my behaviour with a view to impu- improving team performance. And I was blown away. I, I, I just It was like this light bulb moment because for the first time, um, a coach was actually putting on the training session that was 
controlling, not controlling, uh, encouraging players to move in different positions. One striker clearing out of a space, another striker running forward into a space. And those things worked on the weekend and in the next game. And, and that, that, that sort of blew me away. So Eric Eric built on what the, the seeds that Ronnie had sown. Then Len McKendry, who, who was a, uh, another English bloke that came out, I think was a technical director for Football Victoria, but he coached, he did coach the Victorian senior men's team. He coached at Heidelberg in South Melbourne. And Lenny was another, te- he was a wonderful wonder teacher of football. He changed behaviours of players for his entire time. He, he wasn't, didn't have a smile on his face very often, but he was a wonderful teacher. So Lenny, Lenny really showed me that, you know, you, you can improve any team. You, you can't make the worst players in the world, the best players in the world, but you can make them a better team than they were than when you started. So, you know, if you love human performance, then it doesn't matter the group, you can help the group to get better. Um, and then Ronnie obviously influenced that. I got to work with Ron Smith on a day-to-day basis. I was a full-time coach. He, w- he understood I was at the beginning of my journey. He let me work with the players. He helped me understand what he was doing, why he would do that. He encouraged me to go into the library to watch old World Cup games and look what the strikers were doing. I'd played as a central striker in my whole career and I was a back-to-goal striker as they were. We were target men. You played it into me. I faced the wrong way. I played it back in the midfield. Then I tried to make a forward run somehow. Ronnie understood back then, and we're talking uh, 1987, that the best strikers in the world were now facing forwards most of the time. One, I couldn't believe I hadn't recognised that myself. And and two, I then went off and went, wow. And I, I still got to play uh, a little bit in, in and around uh, Canberra and I started to play around with defenders. And, and instead of them staring at the back of my head, I would turn around and face them, which intimidated them to death and they'd step backwards and then their teammates would encourage them to come up. So, so Ronnie taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about uh, improving technique. You know, I learned how to cross the ball the best. I'd retired from playing and I was a fantastic crosser of the ball with both feet because I actually understood the technique. And you know what? Uh, the other the other coach that had a that had a big influence on me was Frank Arrock because through that time at the AS, nineteen eighty eight they went to the Seoul Olympics and I think uh, Eddie Thompson and Frank had a falling out. Um, uh, Eddie left and then Frank needed some help with the next um, World Cup qualifying campaign. So John Margaritas was there, Bertie Mariani who was a great player and a great coach at Marconi, and I got an opportunity to you know to go from playing into assistant coach at the AS to assistant soccerers coach. Um, and, and of course, I went into the, the soccerist camp all gung-ho. Um, okay, we do this, 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 and the other. And, and some of them went, hang on, slow down, Coley. You've only just finished playing in there. You know you know everything about everything, as the enthusiastic coach does. But Scott yeah. Olleranshaw made a point. He was in that camp and, and a, a wide player that was probably a better as a central striker. But we, we I taught him some things that Ronnie had taught me. And 40 years on, he's still teaching those things to kids in bloody Malaysia. Now, I learned how to cross the ball when I was retired from a coach. And that still absolutely intrigues me to this day. You know, you you hear a lot about let the game be the teacher. And I think that the game is a great teacher about some things sometimes. I don't think the the game is a great teacher about all things, all the time for everyone. Either the game was stupid or I was stupid because I got to the age of 30 and didn't really know how to cross a ball properly. So let, let me let me ask you a question about our, our current crop, given this is the conversation, the trajectory it's going in. We're talking about technique and technical. Yep. 
and then we're talking about um, you know coaches changing behaviours. Um, do you think we've got it wrong over the last ten to fifteen years when our new philosophy has been let the game teach you as opposed to isolated practice or small amounts of isolated practice. Obviously I did that as, as a player as well. Yep. Um, it wasn't until after my career that, that it come in, allow the players to play. What's your thoughts in and around that? And do you think you would have ever been able to work out how to face forward and make a forward run had you not been told? Um, or do you think you would have been able to cross the ball like you did had you not been told directly? Uh, look, encouraged my guess is no i probably wouldn't have um you know i i think there are some things that when you play you learn you don't necessarily they call that innate learning you sort of learn you don't know that you're learning but you don't learn everything all of the time i i think that there needs to be this sort of division about where where we you know do you want to do you want to coach this group of athletes boys or girls men or women and all they want to do is play for fun because if that's all they want to do, then get them organised and let them play and have fun. That that will be the best thing you can do for them. If you want to teach people how to love the game for a lifetime, don't try and teach them what they don't want to learn. And then on the other side, you've got this group of boys and girls, men and women that want to be, they want to get better. They want to cross the ball better. They want to learn how to make forward runs more often. They're the people that we should be teaching and encouraging certainly do that with this group if they if they want to but for the ones that want to learn and get better i think you can supplement them not you know t today we have to be a, you know not not as as so dictatorial in, in terms of the way we're delivering that message but it's really interesting that i've never never ever asked anyone would you like some help and they say no yeah <laughs> if i could help you cross the ball better would you be interested in that Who's going to say no to that question? But if Absolutely. they do, then you go, well, you know, no point flogging a dead horse, is there? And yeah. I, so I think we've got, we've got caught up in that. Uh, you know, yeah. th there is – and the other part of that is because if you're going to play at the pointy end of the game, at the elite end of the game, where winning and losing does make a difference to your, your salary, your income, your, job pros your prospects for coaches about keeping jobs um, – be, letting the game be the teacher is good. When we might say, okay, well, if we if we let these these this player play for another couple of years, then they might be able to do that, but they might not have a chance in a couple of years. You know, if we can teach them to get better in a couple of areas this week and show them how to grow, because we all know once you you know you you learn something new and adopt it, you go, whoo, hey, what what else have you got up in your bag of tricks to teach me? So, you know, I think there's a a, a mixture in all of that. Yeah, most definitely. And I, I guess that that leads me into um, we talk about mentors in life. Have you got or had or still have a mentor uh, from a coaching perspective? Yeah, R R Ronnie clearly was. I mean, how, how could you get away? He he tricked me uh, into coaching at the start and, and then encouraged me along the journey. Um, you know, when I left um, the AIS and went back to Melbourne and, and coached Heidelberg in the NSL. Um, you know, I used to ring him on a regular basis. Ronnie, I've been I've been trying to get the player. I've been I've been you know flogging this horse for three weeks. I I can't I can't get him to do this. And he would say, Oh yeah, that happened to me. And I, and I used to say to them, Do this, this, and this. And I was like, Nah, it can't be that easy. Come on, <laughs> come on, Smudger. He said, Well, just have a go. And lo and behold, you go and do it, and you come back and you go, 
how the bloody hell did you learn that stuff? That's that's just intriguing. So, yeah, look, he he was he was great. I I, I loved I loved that era of coaching because I think I think people were prepared to talk and share. And you know, you can have a formal mentor, and I'm going to say Ronnie was a formal mentor. We never had. He never said, "Gaz, I'm going to be your mentor." I never said, "Ronnie, would you be my mentor?" But he was. He he was always there. And I one of the things I've learned about mentoring, Heather, is you can only do it with people that you trust. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The, if if there if the tr- trust isn't there, you can't mentor because that's the foundation that that's built on. So, um, he, he was always there to to ask those questions. But one of the thing I loved about going to to coaches coming together on licenses or you know professional development courses was you had the conversations about playing and coaching football, and it was clear that there wasn't one way of doing it. Never, never ever was. You know, I'm, I'm a great believer in the principles of play and I'm glad to see that they're, they're now back in and I think that's a great foundation for people. But we as coaches are, the, are great innovators. We have to be. You know, there's not a coach in the world came in at halftime losing 3-0 and said to his team, keep going team, you're doing fantastic. You know, you, you've got to look for solutions all the time. There isn't just one solution, there's lots. And, and I think that's what I loved. I still have conversations with people in and around the game and you, I think you can learn from people in and around the game all the time if you're open to listen and you're open to learning. Absolutely. So in terms of being a, a, a great coach, what attributes do you think um, make that, that great coach or a coach that's effective? Um, I, I think you've got to have the heart of a teacher in there somewhere, the, the capacity to help people grow and learn. I think you've that comes with being patient. It's a bit like being a parent, you know, you, you, you've got to help and encourage people. Um, today, you probably have to be more compassionate over overall than you did in the past. You know, the, the, the welfare of these young people as human beings, as well as players, is just so, so important. Um, you, you've got to create an environment where it's safe to fail. You know, we want people. You can't expect people to try things if you they try things and fail and criticise them. Um, and maybe that's you know, in business there's this thing called risk management. Um, I think football there's risk management as well. Yeah, maybe you don't try that in back third. Maybe you do it try it a bit more in the middle third. But hey, if you're in the front third, you do that as often as you like because the rewards are a lot higher if you do those sort of things in those areas. Most definitely. Uh, Gaz, you spent um, several years, which I'm sure uh, the listeners would love to to hear about, um, at Melbourne Victory. Oh, wow, those those several years, um, the club was so successful. Um, they were the powerhouse. Um, there was the, the winning mentality within the within the group, um, which no doubt you influenced in some way, shape, or form. Talk to me about your role at Melbourne Victory um, from from your perspective, because you were in or in the change rooms? Yeah, look, I, I, well, I was a footy ops manager. Um, I actually could have, <laughs> I could have been the first coach um, uh, because I, um, the, I, I got a call from Jeff Lord, who was the inaugural chairman of Melbourne Victory that had been encouraged to, to put Melbourne Victory together. Um, and he, in recent years, had found out that, that I'd been a coach. But w- when we went through it all, I, I just figured that I could be, because I had a, at that stage in my life, a much better understanding of business plans and budgets and, and, you know, the overall performance thing. I thought I could be a great ally to whoever we, we selected as a coach. 
um, and work with them to build and grow what we, you know, we were going to get one chance, you're going to get one chance to do it uh, right, hopefully, and we wanted to do that. So so it was a, an incredible honour to be a part of it and, and what an opportunity, you know. I, when Jeff Lord rang me, I, I couldn't sleep, you know. I, I got up and I started to write, get things out of my head um, down into a, an A4 notebook uh, and I wrote, you know, I, I can't tell you how many pages, but I wrote till about 4.30 a.m. and then I could go to sleep. Um, and I woke up the next morning and we started to started to tick some of those things, you know, off of the list. So fortunate that we brought on Ernie, who was a, a very modern coach. You know, he'd been at the VIS, been a professional coach. Um, we were going to have a lot of young players. We wanted to build them through. So it was great to work with Ernie. We stole a whole bunch of staff that were, you know, very eager professionals from the VIS. From We, we had, you know, female sports science, female physios. Everyone laughed because in football back then, you know, that was like a female on the bench. What are you talking about? It's just bizarre stuff. But we got the best people we could. And they all worked for not, not, not nothing, but they worked, you know, on the smell of an oily rag in those, in those early years to build it. And I have to say that was a great credit to Jeff Lord and the board. He understood that he had no background and knowledge of football. And in those early days in particular, he let Ernie and I um, build a technical department and a team, the off-field teams. And, and you know, that they, they, he worked hard behind the scenes commercially. They did a fantastic job, you know, building the membership profile, the brand. We got the players out into the community and did great things there. And one of the things that you know we, we got to we got to agree on was that because initially the um, the commercial manager Adrian Lloyd had come from the AFL um, and he wanted access to the players twenty four seven, and we just we just said no, nah, Adrian, this is you can have them, mate, when they're not training and playing. So first and foremost, they're professional athletes, um, and when they need to train, they need to train, uh, and then right, after that you can have them. And we had a few battles over that, but. We did great things, and then either the the crowd was unbelievable. You know, in the old Olympic Park, my favourite ground, the atmosphere that they created, that then grew on the number of people that bought a Melbourne Victory membership that had never been to a game of football in their life. They were encouraged to come along to an Olympic Park on a Friday or a Saturday night. They walked in, maybe went into some sort of a chairman's function, had a couple of sherbets, and they went, what's going on out here? Because they'd never experienced an atmosphere like it in their lives. And those people walked out with a bloody a scarf, a cap, and a membership ticket, and were bringing people back going, hey, you've never experienced anything like this. It was remarkable. you know. And then for, a, I think, in year two, we had a we played Sydney early on in the season um, at Etihad Stadium as it was then and we had like 42,000 people for a home and away game of football against Sydney FC and the crowd was unbelievable. It was the worst game of football we played but the crowd was unbelievable. So just on that, um, Gaz, there's obviously obviously, uh, uh, the perfect ingredient. You've got two people that want to work together. You've got an operations manager um, that the the chairman's brought on, um, a selfless operations manager that didn't want to be the, the head coach because he felt he could contribute somewhere else. You've got Ernie Merrick, who's probably one of our best coaches we've ever produced in Australia, an absolute legend, humble guy as well. So you've got two people. Do you put it down to the relationship between the both of you and the staff that you built collectively? Because we're not talking, it's 
we're talking at a club that started from the ground up and you're talking about 42,000 people at a stadium that in Australia, football slash soccer is not something, especially in Melbourne when AFL is the primary sport in Melbourne. And it was you guys that established that along with all the other people that you spoke about. What, what do you put it down to? Is there is there something that you think the viewers would pick up on? Is it the relationship? Is it the the camaraderie? Is it the passion for football? What What is it? Tell us because I want to know. Yeah, well, I, I wish I could tell you exactly because if I could bottle it, I could pay for my retirement, Heather. That would be a piece of cake. <laughs> we don't need you to retire just yet, guys. I think it's really, really clear that it's always about people and it's always about relationships. Nothing good ever came in from bad relationships. It's just it's just not possible because people have to work together to build. So Melbourne Victory wasn't great because of Jeff Lord or because of Ernie Merrick or Aaron Healy or Anita Pedrana, sports scientist, or, or any of the commercial guys. It was an incredible amount of work to build something like that from the ground up. But there was a great belief in what we were doing. So Jeff Lord could could was a great talker on his feet and could sell the message of what he was trying to build. You know, one of the best sporting organisations in Melbourne that was going to be around for hundreds of years. That was a big part of it. What we did really, really well was we built a great culture. The Victory Way was a, a culture that came not just from Ernie and I, it was developed by Ernie and I and, and our um, um, as our, our, our sports psychiatrist with the players, you know, the players bought into all of that about the behaviour. And, and I think one of the things in there is when those behaviours, the, the, the way that people behave outside of the football field, the expectations we have of one another, when we can hold one another to account around that because this is how we want to go, I think that played a significant part in that success. I will say we, we didn't mention in all the things I spoke about, we we were also very conscious on trying to get great leadership on the field. You know, we, we didn't have the biggest budget at the start. Melbourne Victory wasn't one of the biggest clubs. It didn't have the biggest membership when we started. So, you know, bringing the, – the, back then, of course, the A-League was one team, one town, which was a great – you know, it was a great model. You, you, could, you had the capacity to try and win everyone over. And we knew we were going to play in that big V – and we wanted to bring back primarily Victorian players as we could, mix him with, with some experience from overseas. So bringing, bringing back Archie Thompson, bringing back Kevin Musket were, was fantastic. You know, they'd, they'd established and played great careers overseas. Um, Muskie in particular was a great on-field leader um, and developed into a great off-field off leader as well. So the, the squad that we developed, and particularly in year two, where we went overseas, sent Ernie overseas to do some scouting in Brazil, and, and came back with you know three Brazilians. One was not great, one was in the middle, and one was fantastic in Fred. That was great. But again, players are people, so it's always about the people. But I'm, I will always come back to culture. If you want to develop people, create an environment that you can develop people in. Guys, have you got that bottle? Because I'm sure you can put this message in the bottle. No, I've, I've decided not to bottle it. I'm, I'm just going to, if you want to employ me to, to, to spread the gospel, according to Gaz, hey, yeah. anytime, anywhere, now that we can fly around the country again. Yeah, people, culture, connection. Absolutely. It's... Those are the three things that that obviously important and I'm sure we can learn a lot um, from the good old days. Um Guys, we're going to turn um, our attention not to football. Um, 
I'd like to turn our attention to something that's very heartfelt, something that's um, I'm sure hasn't been easy. Um, but Gaz, you're a cancer survivor. In remission. <laughs> In remission at the moment. Tell us about when you found out, the day that you found out. Whoa, Jesus, didn't know I was going to go this here. Um, I was, uh, I, I, first of all, piece of wisdom here, never say you're retired. I'd I, I sort of quit the, the, the leisure business, got encouraged back into, into things um, by Football Victoria and then announced I was uh, taking a package and I was going to be retired. And I think seven days later I found out that I needed to have heart surgery, which I did know at Melbourne Victory because of the great doctors I found out. I had a, a dicky valve in my heart and I always knew that at some point that was going to need replacing. So we went off and, and got the heart valve replaced. Um, I got back into being fit and healthy and active, went off to, to um, Europe to the, the FIFA um, Women's uh, World 3 on 3 cup with uh, our baby Rebecca and and came back and cranked up the the rehab and started to get this horrible pain in my back and being a bloke just put that off just figured it was probably something I tweaked in the gym and eventually you know it got worse and worse and worse and I went off and had a range of different scans and tests as you do and and got diagnosed with diffuse large b-cell non-hodgkin's lymphoma um which is a, obviously a form of blood cancer lymphoma, which is one of the one of the um, most common cancers in Australia. Um, and and actually, not that there's any good cancer to get, but if you're going to get cancer, then lymphoma is not a bad one to get because it does respond really well to chemotherapy and radiotherapy. So, um, found out I had a 10 centimetre tumour in the middle of my chest, and and you know this was going to be a um, uh, a process to get through, uh, to come through the other side. So the diagnosis was was really hard because I, w- one of the, the the blokes I was recommended to go and see was a gastroenterologist, and he was a, a he was a mad Liverpool fan. So I paid for his services for forty five minutes, and he spoke about Liverpool for thirty five. Um, and then we got down to my lump and he sent me off for some tests. And when we went back, we sat down. He hadn't looked at the results because the, the, the conversation started about Liverpool. Um, and then his face changed uh, and he said, I, I've got some bad news. You've got this lump in your ear and I think it's this. Um, so he rang someone at, at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and, and the journey began. The good news was it wasn't what he thought it was. It was lymphoma. And, and so we went through six rounds of chemotherapy and then 20 rounds of radiotherapy but um yeah it, it was a it was a tough time heather because you you can't help but think my mum my died of breast cancer 29 years ago um and you think about how, how many people don't survive um and of course that becomes really really tough because i've got three beautiful i've got four beautiful women in my life my, my wife Rosalind, my eldest daughter jessica emma in the middle and, and rebecca and you start to think about all the things that you know you're not going to have. You're not going to see them get married. You're not going to see them have grandchildren. You're not going to get to kick a ball around in the in the backyard with your grandchildren. And it was um, it was pretty tough um, in the early part. But I'm one of the. I think I'm I'm been really really lucky. Uh, I don't have a worry gene somehow. It's just not part of me that doesn't mean i don't care about stuff but i, I I'm, I'm fortunate i do understand that i'm fortunate that i don't spend a lot of time worrying and because of the i've spent so much of my time around high performance I'm like, okay i've got cancer so how do i fix it you just tell me what i do doc you know what do you do what do i do and and that was the path that we went down you know we changed my diet 
um, went and did everything. If they said, you know, do this, then then I did it. And if I need to do it again, I'll do it one more time. So, um, so as, do, do you think you utilize some of your um, coaching, um, your mental toughness as a player, um, trying to, you spoke about, yeah, Doc, um, what do I do? How do I get better? That's a normal thing from a former pro footballer. Um, what learnings did you use to be able to cope? Um, because do you know what? You are probably the most optimistic, happy, positive person. Um, and you're just an inspiration. And for you to go through something like this and hit such a, a massive obstacle in your life to then contribute what you've done with, Football Coaches Australia and, and football in general, um, it's it, uh, you know it's just it's just amazing, guys. And I, I really think we can talk about how happy you are and how great football's been for you. Um, former Socceroo, former coach, um, assistant coach of Socceroos, Melbourne Victory. But this is life. And and whilst you use football as as a an outlet. Um, it'd be great to see what coping me mechanisms you didn't use and whether football coaching um, played a huge part in that and the Football Coaches Association as well. Yeah. Look, I don't think coaching per se played part in it. I, I, I've got no doubt my, you know, I'm by nature, I, I'm a glass half full sort of person and I understand again, that I'm fortunate because there's a whole b bunch of people that are not. I, I, ask on this podcast all the time to coaches how important is resilience as a coach and everyone says oh Jesus it's, it's just so important and we all agree with that the question is are you born with it or is it you know I, I think resilience is like a bit of a muscle and you you get to choose each time you get a kick in the teeth um, you get to choose whether it's worthwhile to get up again um, and that's where that resilience muscle gets stronger um, We've got a saying in the coal household, <laughs> and Rebecca and I use this too often for one another. Rule number one, life's not fair. Rule number two, please refer to rule number one. <laughs> because it's not. You know, you can be the best human being. You can be the prettiest, the smartest. That you, you can be the richest, but life will keep kicking you in the backside over and over again. And so we as human beings have a choice. Do we? How do we react to that? Do we fall and crumble or do we get back up, dust ourselves off and, and start over? So, you know, I think um, what, what having cancer did for me, it gives you a great focus, Heather, on what's important. We've all got so much going on in our life. You know, I'm fortunate. I'm, uh, I don't have a mortgage anymore. I don't have a job anymore. I don't have to be responding to emails 24 hours a day, which frustrates the bejesus out of some people because I don't check my email every five minutes. Um, but for me, it was really clear. Um, family and health were the two most important things for me. So that's where I'm going to invest my time. Then we get through that. What, what else... You know, what else do you love? Well, I love the game. How can I contribute? And I was fortunate that, you know, this happened at a time when I was invited on to, to be um, on the Executive Committee of Football Coaches Australia. And I just love the work that, that they're doing, that we're doing to do this, to tell the story of Australia's coaches, to help coaches get better. Because, you know, I, I, one of my pet beefs is we've been great in this country at putting people through coaching licences for a long, long time now. Um and, but that's like giving an 18-year-old a driver's license, gives them access to the road, doesn't make them a great driver. 
and they're the people that crash and burn the most on the road. So how do we help coaches to get better? And I know at the heart of what we do, that's what Football Coaches Australia want to do. So, you know, that's been a blessing for me because it's been a nice um, a, a, a nice distraction outside of that. The, the, the camaraderie and the connectedness that we've developed through Zoom, God only knows what how Football Coaches Australia would have survived without Zoom. <laughs> Um, is wonderful. There's a team spirit in the organisation that I think is is fantastic, and and that that certainly has helped me, um, because I think we all, at the end of the day, I think we'd all like to leave the game a little bit better than we found it, and if we all do that, then you know maybe the game's going to be better off at the end of the day. Absolutely, it is, and what a team culture we do have at FCA, uh, <laughs> led by the great Glenn Worry. <laughs> Um, you're talking about paying it forward. You obviously paying it forward at FCA as as an executive member. Um, you're paying it forward in different volunteer roles, but you're also paying it forward as an ambassador for Legs Out for Lymphoma. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Gaz? <laughs> Let me know when I, I can get my legs out. <laughs> well, yeah, that was that was through Mark. So uh, Lymphoma Australia, a wonderful organisation. They they fundraise a couple of times a year to raise funds for lymphoma nurses. I have to say. I was blown away. I got to to go to Peter Mac Cancer Centre, which is one of the most remarkable places uh, in and around Melbourne. The building itself is beautiful. It's filled with a vast array of doctors, chemo nurses, researchers, um, technical people um, that all have this wonderful compassion. I think if you get into the medical profession, you've got to have this this um, uh, compassion gene. I think if you get into cancer medicine, you've probably got two doses. I, I don't know because they're they're absolutely incredible. So it was like, what can you do? How can you know? How can I help? And Lymphoma Australia sort of reached out, and um, Re- Rebecca and I. Well, really, actually, it was Rebecca that, that started the, the the relationship because she was sorry. Rebecca's my youngest daughter. That's a basketballer. Um, she was like, what what can I do? So she reached out to them um, last year, towards the end of last year, and said, you know can I help? And they asked her to be an ambassador, not me, not, not the old dinosaur. So Rebecca, so she did a, a whole bunch of things, I think around September last year and, and some silly activities to raise funds, which we joined in. And then this March is their annual um, fundraising thing for Legs Out for Lymphoma. So um, we just, you know, we ran a cause. We, we, we ride our bikes, we throw kettlebells around, we walk, um, we drink coffee, we stick our legs out, we have a picture taken. You know, and uh, I think as a family, we raised about five grand this time around, which is, you know, fantastic. And that goes to helping more lymphoma nurses be more accessible to more people around Australia. And uh, I think that's a great cause. It certainly is. Close to my heart. I'm sure it is. Um, Like many things, Gaz. Um, We've already touched on it, but I am going to ask a question. Um, What are you most proud of? both in life, whether it be playing, coaching, football management, what are you most proud of? What's something that when you're sitting in your rocking chair, <laughs> you're looking back thinking, geez, I'm proud of that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm proud of most of the stuff I've done, all of it, because I'm a human being. I've done some horrible things uh, over my life journey as well. I'm incredibly proud of my family. You know, my beautiful wife, Rosie, my beautiful daughters, Jessica Ann, Emma Jane and Rebecca Joy. Um, 
that they, they're all very, very different women that do fantastic work. Jessica is an accountant, works in a practice that specialises in um, liquidation, so they're always busy. Emma's head of house at Caulfield Grammar School, so she's a teacher, uh, and Rebecca's a professional athlete. They look different, they're different personalities, but they all go out and, and take on the world each day with a, a verve and a, and a willingness to succeed that I'm very, very proud of, and I'm proud of their mum because when I was initially playing football and then coaching football and on Zoom gallivanting, gallivanting yeah, around the world. Um, Rosie was there making sure that they were, you know, they were well looked after and, and doing all of those things. So family without doubt is the proudest. I, I, I can't tell you how proud I am to pull on the green and gold shirt. Uh, I still get a bit teary now. When I think about making my debut, walking on to Olympic Park, which was one of my favourite stadiums in Australia, and hearing the national anthem played, the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and it still does when I think about it. I, and I know you've felt the same way there. Um, so proud of, of what we did at Melbourne Victory. You know, we, we, we helped build um, a foundational club in the A-League. It hurts so much to see where they're at right now. Um, and based on what we've said so far, I think culture's got a, a big part to play in all that, and I really, really hope that they can get that right. Um, but I'm proud of the people that I've worked with on the way. Uh, you know, you, through this, um, the cancer journey, I've had so many people reach out. I've drunk so much coffee, which was tough when we were in the middle of COVID. But people just talk about, you know, the way you might help them, the things that you did to help them along as a player. And, and that's wonderful too. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud, of, uh, uh, proud of a whole lot of it. Um, and I think that's, that's just a part of, you know, if, if I'm going to be involved in – I'm going to be involved to the best of my ability and, and hopefully leave it a little bit better than we found it. You certainly have. And um, Gaz, what I can say from my own experience of you, you inspire people, but not only do you talk, you walk the talk. And um, as a leader and, and a person that, that loves the game, um, maybe Melbourne Victory should be giving someone like yourself a call. Um, Last and final question, what advice would you give to your younger self as a coach or to coaches thinking about making a career for themselves in football? Yeah. I, I think I learned one of, the, one of the great things on my journey is I, I call it acquiring now. I've stolen great lines from people all across the time with great wisdom. I think as a coach, uh, Ernie Merrick has said one of the wisest things to me ever, and that's check that the VAR is working properly. <laughs> <laughs> and he would have, wouldn't have said it with a smile on his face. <laughs> no, no, he did. <laughs> he did. He's got a good sense of humour. Um, what would I say to you? I think I'd just say just invest invest in people but make yourself one of the important people that you invest in. You know, too, too, too often I, I've seen people uh, across all walks of life expect to go to work for an organisation and that organisation will invest in them. They'll take the time to buy them books or send them on seminars or, you know, buy them a, um, a Foxtel box so they can watch games in, in, in the A-League. And, and I've, I've found that, that maybe that should happen more but it's just so important to invest in you. You know, books. What a what a wonderful what a wonderful investment books are to be able to read someone else's knowledge and wisdom to share in that. If you invest, you know, people want 
we've spoken about mentors, but if you want a mentor, then go and invest in the mentor. Go and invite someone out for coffee. You know, don't don't expect to take. You've got to invest back in it. If you want to reap rewards, then you um, you've got to sow some seeds along the way. So that that for me is the I think is it. You know, you've got to invest in people. If people are going to grow and develop, we have to invest in them. But if you want to be a if you want to be a farmer of people, then invest in yourself first. As I think that is probably the biggest message that <laughs> today is about um, being selfless. I think throughout the interview and the podcast today, you've shown that in um, spades, uh, you're humble, you pay it forward. Um, you're a lover of the game. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, it's been exceptional to be sitting on this side, to be able to interview you. I've been excited all week. Um, and do you know what? Uh, you got many, 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 many years of contributing back to football, um, but football and our community should be so proud to for you to have represented the country as a Socceroo, but also now being part of Football Coaches Association and um, and also being able to pay it forward. So thank you for the interview and the podcasts, and no doubt there's so many learnings there. Uh, so I just <laughs> want to thank you. Thanks, Heather. That's very, very generous. You've made your old uncle go a little bit teary here. I thought that might be because you were going to go over the top in a couple of the tackles, but but it's not. It's because you're a wonderful human being and fan of this been fantastically well. So thanks, mate. I've enjoyed the chat. No, it's been nice. And obviously we need to touch on the soft side of you. You're always smiling, which I love, and, and you're always having a joke and so am I. But in saying that, um, there's just so many, so many things I've learned um, within this podcast. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ever Gary. Up. Um, a bit strange being this side of the microphone. You've been listening to the Football Coaching Life podcast brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media the Podcast Professionals. If you've enjoyed, if you've enjoyed today's conversation, please go to footballcoachesorg.au. You can buy a membership. You can renew a membership. You can find out a whole bunch more about the Coaches Association of Australia and, and how we can help you. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.